Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. Well, here we are with episode five of our Le Mans series, our top tens. And today, well, it's a list of many names you're going to recognize, but they all have one thing in common. They couldn't get the glory of Le Mans, which of course the countdown is on now. I may remind you before we even get going. We'll have our Le Mans preview for you next Wednesday and then our final part of our Le Mans series on Thursday, looking at the greatest drivers. And then uh, and then next weekend, we're talking about just why Le Mans is the greatest event in motorsport. So let's get into it. Uh, we are once again here recording at Brands Hatch. Lunch break time, though, so nothing on track. You'll hear nothing. Well, uh, you may do as the podcast goes on. And uh, we are joined by our chief editor, Kevin Turner, who once again, you've bought your small library of books. You didn't make any reference to them last time we were out at Silverstone doing a little series of podcasts, but it's always good to have some reference here in case you get stuck on a fact or two. I, I, to be honest, they're kind of more for confidence, I think. How many times have I actually opened them? Hardly at all. Not yet. But we do have the official Le Mans book, or the first three editions um, for, by Quentin Sperry, of course, former uh, editor of Autosport. Uh, and I've got a couple of new books which I need to review, which I'm running out of time to do before the race. <laughs> Probably a bit daft to review them afterwards. Uh, so, yes, I'd like to bring them with me. But, I, yeah, you just get into a flow normally. That's because um, we have our own human encyclopedia opposite us right now. Well, so. I mean, that's an introduction and a half, isn't it? Well, <laughs> uh, I better say some clever things to live up to that. Uh, Gary Watkins, thank you for joining us once again on a Le Mans podcast. Uh, we are a few weeks out from... The event, as of recording this, but of course, by the time it goes out, because recording a few in, in in one day, it'll just be a week before. So thank you in advance for the preview show, uh, which you're going to do for us. And uh, and also the, the While I'm On is the greatest show. Looking forward to doing that. But uh, let's get into, let's get into this list. Like I say, it's a list that... Well, that was a bit timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly Doctor Who, that, wasn't it? Yeah. It's like, but it coming out here. And, and, yeah. But, but yeah. thank you for the thing you're going to do. Oh, just, oh dear. Oh, okay. you know, well, time the, machine to sort out. At this, time, at this time of year, I lose track of time anyway. So uh, just because it's the busiest time of year for me. So I'm not very good on uh, on timing. So Is that right? So then the lead up to the event, you just get a little bit fuzzy headed on what, well, day, I, what day of the week it well, is. Well, yeah, a little bit because my workload increases and uh, I, get, I get I get excited and nervous also as Le Mans 
comes up and of course you know i'm not just at le mans for a weekend i'm i'll be there from the weekend before which is the weekend of the test day the test day on the sunday i'll be at some of the scrutineering maybe not the friday but certainly on the saturday and i you know if if i'm home on the tuesday after the race i'll be lucky well no i will be home if i'm home on the monday i'll be lucky but i might might not make it home until the tuesday so so it's a long um time to be away I'm not sure I have that many pairs of socks either how much of your Le Mans experience is routine you have been to over a third of the events that they have held as you pointed out earlier today do you scout out the same seat in the media center do you like your favorite spot to watch from how much of it now do you for wear you? lucky pants <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to go there uh, how much of it for you is routine no lucky pants but I have sat in the same seat in the media center for many years uh, whether that will be the case this year because Obviously, with the interest in Le Mans, with, you know, all the new manufacturers coming, especially Ferrari, also Porsche and Peugeot, uh, I know that um, they've had a lot more press applications than uh, normal. So whether I will get my favourite seat, I don't know, but it probably really doesn't matter. I, I always like to get out on track during uh, qualifying, obviously. In the modern era of the internet, it's it's harder to sort of take time away from your desk. But I always make a point of going out at least once, perhaps going to up to Turt Rouge or watching at the Porsche curves. And if if I've really got a lot of time to go down to Mulsanne Corner, have a look there. Or, or of course, uh, Arnage in Indianapolis. And I, I normally try and have some frites while I'm out and about as well, just because it just because it seems like the right thing to do. And a beer, I would suggest as well. It's quite often, uh, depending on when, when you are in the week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would think that there's some sort of red rope around your favourite seats. And I, I don't like the idea of some influencer oik turning up this year, sitting in Gary's throne. I, I, but uh, I, I we'll would wait suggest and... that really Gary should have a permanent you know, VIP pass and I have to apply. But anyway, a little plaque, um, a little plaque on his yeah. on the desk. You're making me feel old, and so I, I, I'm not. Uh, I, I can live without that stuff. Okay, here we go. Let's get into the list of the top ten drivers who, well, success eluded them. Who is at number ten? Before we went on air, we were actually talking about this, and we quite often we throw in a few honourable mentions at, at the at the end of these top tens. I think we should talk about some honourable mentions at the beginning. And who might depose your number 10 from that spot? Yeah, that's fair enough. So just to kind of lay down the criteria, which is so these are sports car drivers who appeared at Le Mans but didn't win. I'm not just talking about other graces, you know, Lewis Hamilton who never raced at Le Mans, not that sort of thing. So these are, you know, mega sports car drivers who just, uh, who might have got close to winning uh, and lost through no fault of their own. So the first first caveat, I suppose, is that, that they have to be retired. They can't be current drivers because, quite obviously, they might win and then take themselves off the list. So that kept Anthony Davidson off this list when we first did it a few years ago. He is subsequently retired, so he's now eligible. So will he be on the list? Yes, of course he will. Yeah. Uh, Stefan Sarazan, I would suggest, multiple pole sitter and podium finisher, technically not yet retired. I mean, the chances of him getting, a, a, I guess, a, a seat that he could win them on with is, is fairly small I would, I would say suggest now. negligible negligible yeah but I'm using that to just make my life a tad bit easier and keep him out of it for a couple more years so yeah so in terms of the honourable mention so obviously Dave O coming into this list has knocked out my previous number 10 uh, sitter who was Thierry Bootsen who came close in Peugeot Porsche and Toyota machinery 
at the 24 hours. So a very strong case to get into the 10. Uh, very, very strong. Very strong say. case. And, and, and a good pedigree in sports cars, you know. Okay, he's a Grand Prix winner, but he, he did a lot over a long time in sports cars. Yeah, the sensational win at Spa, didn't he, I think, in the 1,000 Ks. That's right, yes. Porsche and, so a very proper driver. The first customer win for an I-56 with the, the Marlboro-sponsored US car in 83. There you go, yes. So, But he's knocked out, for me, by Jean-Louis Schlesser. So, similar sort of era. Now, Schlesser, he had, didn't get as close as many times as Boots into winning Le Mans. He finished second. His best result, actually, was second in 1981, which is his first of seven appearances. That's not why he's on this list. He's on this list partly because of what happened in 1991, when he was in the car, the C11, with Jochen Mass and Alain Ferté, and they had the race in the bag, three laps clear, with just over three hours to go. A bracket failed and they, the, the car overheated, but they had that race in the bag. So that was a nailed on one. The reason that he pipped for me that he pips Bootsen in the list is his record in sports car racing outside of that, in that he's a double world champion. So uh, that edged him ahead. Was he a better driver than Bootsen? Probably not. But in terms of Le Mans sports cars, I kind of thought he just edged it. But also, what we shouldn't forget is that Bootsen was a part timer for a lot of his sports car career because he was still a Formula 1 driver as we said a, a Grand Prix winner whereas of course uh, we don't really talk about Jean-Louis Schlesser's Formula 1 career uh, very much except for one incident at Monza in 1988 but there you go but that's one of the reasons I wanted him in this list as well actually because I could get a bit bored with that being the only thing that people talk and it's actually, a bit unfair it was, it was Senna's bloody fault anyway well, like, he didn't give, he didn't give Schlesser any damn room who drove off the track to try and avoid him anyway so it was you know, here I come I'm out and Senna get out of the way yeah, and yeah. you know he so, shouldn't have taken that attitude I don't think so, so. especially when he had the race in the bag did he not yeah, well, he was under a little bit more pressure, wasn't he? But mm-hmm. than, than he had, than they were normally in '88. Um, but I think uh, of the people on this list, Schlesser has more World Sports Car Championship wins uh, than anyone else, I think, except one. So second of the, of the people on this list, two titles, uh, and also two poles at Le Mans in '89 and '91 when they were, you know, that was competitive fields. And in in '91, you'd say, well, the C11 was probably favourite to win the race. I don't think you'd have said it was favourite to get pole necessarily. Um, because so, of the three and a half litre because cars. of the three and a half litre Atmo cars yeah so uh, yeah, a, a really strong record at Le Mans but he, almost an even stronger record during pretty good period of sports car racing I'd say so that, that just edged him ahead of Bootsen but uh, yeah uh, it's, it is pretty close because Bootsen came so close so often and also Schlesser when Schlesser was in his sports car pomp he was in a, he was an old man. I think officially he was you know in 1990 or ninety one he was around about forty. But it was generally reckoned that he was significantly older than that, and certainly looked significantly older. I don't know if he'd had a hard life. So he was doing great things and and at an advanced age. Yeah, and he lost in slightly different ways as well. So when he finished second in eighty what uh, in uh, eighty one with the Rondo, they were never going to beat the nine three six the Ixon Bell were in so that was just outclassed and then 89 his, his Sauber had more problems than the other two which finished first and second he ended up fifth 1990 the race that got away for Mercedes that they didn't enter debate etc we talked about in the previous podcast was that his best chance uh, a year he never went and then 91 
obviously as we've we've discussed. So yeah, he just he just edges ahead of Bootsen, but that's by no means a criticism of Thierry. Okay, would you uh, agree, Gary, with uh, him edging edging Bootsen out? Yeah, probably grudgingly agree. Partly because I just think the, the Schlesser story is just it's just a different kind of story, is it? You know, his background, some of the things he got up to as a younger man that we probably won't talk about here you know his his background and just sort of how he came through in the sport I just think yeah makes him a sort of a a bit of an outlier okay on to the number nine place so number nine is Anthony Davidson so he's the sort of newest entry on the list 13 starts his best result of second in 2013 which actually was a race where they had an almost trouble-free run but just weren't quick enough which is the opposite to what Davo normally had. I chatted to him about this um, not that long ago. That you were putting him on the list? Yes. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Because um, uh, I wasn't sure quite how he'd take it. And he did say that I, for a while after 20, so 2016, obviously in our heartbreaks list, the Toyota failing, you know, being overtaken with three minutes, 21 on the clock, six minutes to go when they had their problem. And the other two guys on that in that car did go on to win the mod. Davo was, the, I think, the biggest victim from the 2016 yes. race. Because obviously Buemi and Nakajima went on to become multiple winners at Le Mans. Davidson effectively lost his drive to Fernando Alonso, who also became a multiple winner. Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> very harsh. And, 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 and Anthony did say to me, like, for a while I did hate the race. I, I just, you know, how you can put so much into something so often and come up short he said now I've gone back post-retirement and because obviously now it's sort of this punditry commentator role he goes now I can see the event again for what it is he, um, he, he he's, I spoke to him relatively recently about about 16 and he says he says he's he's sort of overcome the disappointment he says because he knew that on that day he did the best job he possibly could a perfect job if you like that they were they were the deserving winners something happened they didn't win but he says it w- wasn't anything down to me or or my teammates you know and so he's he's definitely come to terms with it yeah uh, and it's he's had a roller coaster ride there as well so obviously apart from quite that, literally <laughs> yeah so he i think he's, he's put know, himself you know, in hospital twice there. yeah well i mean one the, the famous one i guess was the, the being clipped by the ferrari and flipping the toyota uh, over but also he, he said like, some of my best drives have come at Le Mans so uh, in in 2010 uh, with Peugeot you know um, where the, I mean that was on our heartbreaks list as well the, the debacle they had that year but you know he said that when they did their post-race uh, debrief back at the factory he said that his quadruple stint was specifically picked out by the teamers and this is what Anthony did and he's like yes I've it's been acknowledged I thought that was good <laughs> it was a really mega yeah, a really mega stint when they were trying to battle back after an early delay. Um, I say, twenty thirteen was a was a a good run for the whole crew. They just weren't quick enough. Uh, and then, of course, he said, you know, twenty sixteen. Yeah, he was the guy that took the lead and pulled away, and and he felt that, that was a really good stint as well. So I think he feels that he reached some of his highest highs as a driver at Le Mans, but obviously he had his biggest disappointments there as well. But let's not forget, he also a world champion. He won. I think I think we were talking about whether it was fourteen or fifty. I think it's fourteen major races in proper sports car competition. I mean, he should have had a longer F one career. That's a different podcast. Yeah, a really mega, yeah, mega driver who could get closer than twenty sixteen. I mean, it's going to have to I take a pretty. Humbly. I hope no one ever no, gets no, closer quite, no. because I, I will. Yeah, I will cry with them. Yeah. So, uh, all right, moving on. Number eight on the list. So number eight, change of period with one Manuel Fangio. So famously better as a Formula One driver than a sports car driver. But I mean, this is when you're talking about 
one of the greatest top five, top ten Grand Prix drivers. You're still talking maybe, I don't know, top 20, top 25 sports car drivers. You know, it's only that difference. Um, uh, so, so yeah, so he was still formidable. He had one of his great drives in the 93 Million Amelia when he... I mean, I think uh, there's been some myth around it, but there was a steering issue. Was it one-wheel steering? Possibly. Uh, he won the Carrera Panamericana, which is an incredibly uh, arduous, uh, arduous event. Um, but his luck at Le Mans just was, you know, was abysmal, really. Uh, and he never got a, you know, he never really got a proper finish. So he started four times and he never finished. How does he get onto this list? Well, I think apart from the aforementioned uh, strengths and wins he had, it's 1955, like we talked about in the Cars podcast, you know, him and Sterling Moss in the 300 SLR Mercedes. Yeah, they were going to win. They didn't. They failed not because of anything to do with the car, not because of anything to do with the drivers. It was purely because Mercedes withdrew from the event following, obviously, the the real tragedy of the, uh, of Pierre Levey's accident and uh, going into the going into the crowd. So that really is why he's on this list because I think that was a nailed on win for for those two drivers and the car. Is he in the right place on the lists? Well, if you, if we're talking about nailed on victories, Ant Davidson, who's one place behind him. Had a nailed-on victory, six minutes to go when uh, a pipe fractures. And Davidson has finished and has got results at Le Mans, you know, as we were saying on the podium. OK, I'm not saying Anthony's Fangio in terms of talent or achievement. He, but wouldn't, in terms he wouldn't mind of, you if you tried to make well, yeah, I'm, I'm just after I'm just after a, a, a couple of beers here, aren't I? But, uh, but you, know, you know, to my point... Is that you know should should Ant be ahead of uh, Fangio? I, I don't often climb down from uh, my orders. No, you but don't. If someone puts a, a good argument together, I mean, I remember Karun doing a very good. Uh, it was very. It was a good. It was a good one. argument he made. Uh, I, I I think that's fair. I think probably yeah, Dan maybe Lowe flip should, those two could, around. Could, possibly could, could go ahead of, of Fangio. Uh, you know, more sports cars. And you could argue as well that there were times that Davidson was the best driving he's given sports car team. I think so, yeah. Whereas, uh, you know, Fangio, I think... Had Sterling know, Moss. Had Sterling Moss there, who, who was quicker in a sports car. Uh, I don't think even Fangio would have argued with uh, with that. Now, OK, are any, have, have any of Davidson's teammates been Sterling Moss equivalent? I, that's a different across-time debate, well, isn't it? But yeah. I, I... Yeah, I... I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't argue if someone was to swap those two positions around. All right. Well, let's find out. That's three beers, Anthony. <laughs> it's moved you up a up a place, arguably on a on a list that people wouldn't want to be on. But there we go. Uh, what's in the seventh place? So seventh is Rolf Stommelin. Thirteen starts, best result of second in nineteen seventy nine, famously with uh, Paul Newman. Uh, I mean, he he would have been the quicker guy. Yep. <laughs> just just in case you're wondering, and quicker than the uh, team owner Dick Barber, who was a bit of a uh, a heavyweight. Okay. Carried his own success ballast. <laughs> <laughs> Although with a yeah with a turbocharged nine three five, probably not a significant problem. <laughs> Overcomes it a bit. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, he, he was a cast winner three times in Porsches. He was very, very fast. I think he's he's qualifying lap in the Wayward Nam on seven in nineteen sixty nine is probably one of those great. Perhaps borderline insane moments. Yeah, four set, nearly four seconds up. You know, uh, just like you know, against Vic Elford, who loved the car and was also, I would say, one of the great Norman Seven drivers. And he just went, mm, yeah, I don't think we need to be doing this. And Stormley went off like an absolute rocket in the race as well. But actually, perhaps his best drive was his his, his drive in the wet uh, the year before in '68. Um, so, uh, just uh, absolutely, he deserves a place on this 
on this list and he's driving the wet uh, as teammate to Jochen Nierpash. One of the most amazing things about that is that they, they basically drove on sidelights. There was a, an electrical problem uh, with, the, with those cars and they had to literally turn everything off to uh, to keep the car running, so they were driving. You know, they were driving around Le Mans in 1968. That's not Le Mans today, where there's lights and open space everywhere. You know, this is a pretty enclosed Le Mans with not a lot of lights, and they were driv- driving around on side lights. I think he's one of the bravest drivers on this yeah. list, perhaps. I mean, you, if you were being critical, you'd say maybe he wasn't the most mechanically sympathetic. Well, this is interesting because um, I. Uh, uh, a few years ago, as you remember, on the anniversary of his death, uh, I wrote a piece uh, for Autosport and I spoke to people about that. And some people say, yeah, that's fair. Other people said, no, not really. Arwin Springer, who ran the uh, Andy Old team in America, who he who Rolf won uh, Daytona with, for, for example, you know, says, well, I, I'm not sure about that. He was saying, so, you know, there were times when we had problems with the car. And Rolf could sort of get to the bottom of it straight away. And Norbert Singer, you know, the, the f- famed uh, factory engineer at uh, um, at Porsche said, well, you know, he gave the right feedback. And he says, sometimes it's not very helpful for you as an engineer in the pits when the the guy behind the wheel thinks he's the engineer. It's not about he you don't want to be told what you should do to the car. You want to be told what the car's doing. And he was actually quite good at that, you know, and there's sort of there's occasions there's a sort of in 79 when they when Stommelen was trying to make up time uh, on on the winning uh, Kramer car and he rooted the engine. But that was because, you know, they'd lost they'd they'd lost a lot of time when they should have won the race. You know, the backstory there is that the winning Kramer car driven by the Whittington brothers and uh, Klaus Ludwig had just been stopped on the track for about an hour, got back to the pits for some proper repairs. The barber car effectively should have taken the lead, but a wheel jammed and they lost however many minutes. Suddenly, the Kramer car established a significant lead again. Stommelen was trying to charge back and overheated the engine. You know, I think we can uh, allow him that. And also, uh, you know, if you're a car breaker, do you win the Daytona 24 hours four times Good and then over again yeah. thousand kilometres twice? So, you know, maybe that is a, an unfair. I mean, he's highly rated. I mean, I, I, I spoke to John Fitzpatrick, and the two two drivers he mentions are, you know, Derek Warwick obviously helped him win at Brands here, famously in '83, uh, uh, and and Stomlin obviously he drove for him, um, yeah, for quite quite a few years. Um, so yeah, I, I'm pleased Gary's supportive of that one. That's <laughs> probably one of the lesser known names on the list to the wi- a wider audience, but I think very much um, worthy of this list. And of course, it's it's actually you know 40 years. Um, since he was killed at Riverside. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. 
Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P.com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Mm, yeah, there's some very famous names on this list. And uh, let's get on to number six. Who's that? Number six is Vic Elford. Sadly, he also um, passed away not that long ago. I had good fortune to speak to him a couple of times, obviously as a driver of a Porsche 917. Therefore, I was uh, obliged to speak to him as often as possible. <laughs> You're I mean, about Vic's place I, again. <laughs> I, I think that he's one of the most versatile racing drivers. Not he, racing drivers. Well, uh, competition drivers. Competition yeah, drivers. So won the first rallycross event at Lydon. Won the Monte Carlo Rally uh, and the Daytona 4 Hours in the same month in wow. 1967, within a week or two, and then made his F1 debut a few weeks after that. Uh, and I mean, he never got the right equi- equipment in, in F1. But he was I think in an old Cooper, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Um, but in sports cars, I'd say he was one of the best best drivers in the world. He was a constant thorn in the side of the, the Golf JWA 917s because, obviously, famously, they effectively had a second works team uh, Paul Salzberg and then became Martini and Elford was I would say good enough yeah he was on a par with yeah uh, Pedro Rodriguez's Joe Siffert's and so he was quite, and because John Wye was quite conservative at the modifications that he would take from Porsche and go no no that in, the the big engine is not quite reliable yet whatever part it was would just find its way onto Vic's car for race day which used to drive them nuts so and he, he, he just he would take anything wouldn't he because if he thought anything would give him an advantage He'd say, well, why not? He was one of the few people who wanted to drive the 917 in 69. And he said, well, it was fast down the straight and Le Mans is all about speed on the Mulsanne. You know, this is pre-Chicane Mulsanne, of course, a long time pre, uh, pre-Chicane. So he was saying it was a no-brainer. Now, whether you believe that uh, Alfred and Atwood, Richard Atwood, were uh, soft-pedalling it or not in 1969... They did get the 917 to within four hours of the end, uh, and they were miles ahead. You know, they could almost roll it round. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, the car did uh, did did break in the end. The bell housing cracked. The following year, he had the long tail, which was a bit more sorted. Um, he said even in the rain, it was actually pretty pretty stable. Uh, and he was in; they were in contention. He was sharing with Kurt Ahrens. Um That actually moved ahead when uh, Joseph's engine blew up. I've, I've written Joseph's engine blew up. Joseph blew the engine blew up, up on yeah, his blew the engine up, yeah. Did he blow it up in front of the pits? Yeah, this yeah. is the story, in traffic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, not a good move, not I was going to say with an audience. Yeah, John Wire up there with Tom Walkinshaw as team bosses you didn't want to have to explain yourself to, I think. Uh, yeah, broken inlet valve. And then in 1971, when the long tails were so sorted, even JWA was prepared uh, to run them. He had, a, he had a bolt holding the cooling fan broke. Uh, and that, uh, so that, that that was that done. So in actual fact, uh, from his eight starts, he only had a best result of sixth, which was in 1973 in a Ferrari 365 GTB4 Daytona. Which is amazing. Uh, and he did, so he did win his class twice, once in 67, once in 73. So he was a class winner, but, you know, we're talking about overall victories for this list. And, yeah, when I spoke to him, yeah, he, he was still pretty miffed about that. I don't think he'd got the karma that perhaps Davo has oh, really? he's still pretty which which year is he win. most miffed about was he most miffed about 69 oh right okay yeah yeah, 69. yeah but, but he knew he had a good chance each time but yeah, 69 but he had such a car advantage no one else believed that they could get it to the end yeah and I, he felt like I think by 1771 everyone knew that no one's seven was a mm. car to have he still went his own way of course yes but I think 69 because he felt like he was the driving force with that behind that a bit more and of course he had his uh, yeah his good relationship with the Porsche management 
So he was kind of the favoured son on the mm-hmm. Salzburg side after that. So uh, the six, uh, that was the one that I impression that, I, that he was sort of most. Oh really? Yeah. You know, I mean, he said there were a couple of times. But, I should have but to it, be. Really. F- <sighs> Could they really have expected the brand new nine one seven to get to the end? Well, I think that's why race. it appeals to him, because right. it was against the uh, yeah. why it did appeal to him. And now you know, you're talking about were they soft shoeing it or were they driving hard? You know, Dicky Atwood tells a different story to uh, the one that Dick used to tell. You know, uh, I think Dicky will say that Vic was driving pretty hard and wasn't wasn't holding back at all. As the cars are back on track after the lunch breaks, uh, we will take a wee break right now. Not a wee break, you know what I mean? We as in small, oh goodness, I've gone down a terrible podcast cul-de-sac. Fine reverse. We'll be back in a moment. Goodbye. Okay, welcome back to the second part of the Top 10 Losing Drivers uh, podcast of Le Mans, or rather drivers that could just never... Never find the top step, and I, you know, I thought when we looked at the, I looked at the topic uh, title that we knew we were going to do this. It would just be a, full of people who all came second, but not the case on this list. But let's get back into it. And Kev, what's number five? Number five is Joe Siffert. Seven starts, a best result of fourth in 1966. Where actually it was a remarkable result in itself, because that was with uh, the then what you describe as a little Porsche. Uh, leading its class behind, obviously the sort of the formation flying finish of the of the three uh, seven litre Mark II Fords. Yeah, he had two class successes in his first three outings, but that's sort of before he had a real chance to win. So, I think in in 1969 and 1971, so in 69 he's sharing with Brian Redmond in a 908, and in 71 he is sharing with Derek Bell in the 917 Longtail, one of which is hanging on my wall at home. Not the car, Ooh, a picture of it. The amazing. Uh, not paid that much for this. Uh, we need to talk about that, Martin. Yes, I know. Uh, <laughs> so those were those were car failures outside of his control that put him out. The reason he's not higher on this list is because I, I think it's probably his fault that he didn't win in 1970. Right. Because the Norman 7K at that point, were, although not quite as fast as the long tail down the Mulsanne Strait, in the race, particularly as it rained during the race, I think there was much of a much and if it was if it was able to hold on to Vic Elford in the long tail car. And he, he blew it up in traffic going past the bits. He missed a gear shift, which was very easy to do with the Narwan Sevens. Um there wasn't really such a thing as a rev limiter. It, it just you missed a shift and you blew the engine up basically. I spoke to Brian Redman about it and he was yeah, he's not he's not furious about it. He you know, he, I think he very much enjoyed driving with Siffert. He was asked, Do you want to be number one in your own car or number two to Joe? And he said, I'll be number two to Joe because really? he, he knew that that was the best chance of winning. It's okay. effectively like putting your number one and number two drivers in the same car. And they dominated the nineteen sixty nine season between them. He did say to me, oh, Joe is brilliant. If he had a fault as an endurance driver, although easy on the equipment, he had only one speed, which was flat out. He said, we, we, got, on re- we got on really well, never had a crossword, even at Le Mans in 1970, which I thought was rather nice. I guess you, you trust, you know that yeah, the next day it could be you, couldn't it, that makes the mistake. Um, yeah, but he scored yeah, 14 World Sports Car Championship victories. Um, yeah, he won at Daytona, Sebring, Nürburgring and Spa. I mean, they're the other big ones really, aren't they? So very high on the great sports car drivers list. Tops out at fifth because I think that he contributes perhaps more than some of the others on this list to his own non-win. For me, he's just part of the um, the 917 story, isn't he? You know, he he was there at the beginning. I, I do believe he was there at the famous Selvig test 
or strike uh, ring test where JWA got on top of the uh, uh, aero deficiencies of the car. He had a part to play in the in the Can-Am story of the 917, didn't he? You he know, got he, there first before yeah. the whole Penske program. And yeah. he sort of came up with money to make it happen. I think he actually bought one of the cars because he was a bit of a wheeler dealer, you know, a top, top sports car driver. You know, perhaps he's slightly overlooked at JWA because of Rodriguez uh, being there. And, you know, Rodriguez got the headlines here at Brands, for example, uh, for the BOAC 1000. But, yeah, an important, a very good sports car driver and someone who's sort of ingrained in the 917 story. Well, I, I did uh, did various interviews um in 2021 because it was the anniversary of uh, sadly both Pedro Rodriguez and Joseph's death and during the course of that it, it was the, the feeling was very much that they were similarly as fast but you got the impression that Pedro was doing it with his fingertips whereas Sifford was doing it with his elbows and I think yeah, maybe really, the, 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 the drive at Brands here in the wet where Pedro left Joe stand and everyone else to be fair standing was I, I, I would put a Pedro ahead of ahead of Sifford and I think Sifford drove be- in fact Tony Southgate said this at BRM the moment Rodriguez was killed Sifford drove better it was nothing we did he had exactly the same kit it was like he was freed from I think he'd got I think Pedro had got into his head uh, uh, you know because he was they were teammates at BRM teammates at Porsche um, so I thought that was quite interesting isn't it the great picture from the Spa 1000 in 70, 70 yeah. of Rodriguez and Sifa at, at the front, heading into a rouge at the start, and everyone hanging back because the two Alpha males, uh, a term we used uh, in another podcast, I think, are there out front, and everyone's thinking, uh oh, what's going to happen here? But it's a great, it, it is 70, isn't it? It's 70, it's yeah. damp as well. And they are yeah. several hundred yards ahead of it, bearing in mind that the start was the run to yes. Rouge. Yeah, yeah. So they've really come through, you know, it's, it's after the source. And they do touch, there's footage of it. Oh, uh, is there footage? Golf, golf did a video, uh, did some footage from 68 and 70, and Spa's start is on there. And they touch once, if not twice, oh, going wow. through there. Uh, but no, that is that is a brilliant photograph. It is, it is awesome. Yeah, it tell, actually, it, tell, it gives you an insight into those uh, two drivers, how they drove, how they were regarded. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that race was good because that was a Jackie X special because he actually went after them in the Ferrari and made it a three-way battle for a while. But uh, I think I think Siffert and Redmond ended up winning that race. So I don't think we have any argument that uh, Siffert uh, deserves a place. So high up on the list. No arguments. What's no, who's number four? So number four is Brian Redman. Yeah. So I mean, I think they had to be close together. They kind of come as a package. Redman's career was, you know, fortunately was was longer, and he 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 arguably perhaps won more of the sports car classics. He won Targa Florio. He won Daytona. He won Sebring. And he won the Nurburgring thousand kilometers. His best result at, at Le Mans was only fifth, um, but again. It, it, Unlike Sifford, I don't think you can blame Brian for his reasons for not winning. So in 69, he had the opposite approach to Elford. It was like, I want a car that's going to finish. Obviously, him and Sifford were effectively the lead Porsche drivers, given they were winning everything that season. They went for the 908 Spider, had a new long-tailed body on it. Redmond's of the view that it was because of that long-tailed body that they, uh, there was a lack of cooling uh, at the rear end and the gearbox failed. So that was they tried to be clever and it hadn't worked out. The following years we just discussed, 
they were in the lead, by the way, when uh, I perhaps didn't mention that. They were leading when Sifford blew the 9-7 up in 1970. And then in 1973, he was sharing with Jackie Ix. I mean, what a lineup that is. Redmond and Ix in a Ferrari through on 2PB up against Matra. They're, they've played the canny game, got themselves into contention at the right point of the race. Hour and a half to go. Probably was going to head Matra's way. I think even Brian would say that the Matra was marginally the better. But they were still in the fight. And you never know at Le Mans, especially with those two in the car. But then the engine went bang. Um, uh, so, yeah, he only finished four times in 14. But you won't. I don't think you'll find anyone to suggest that he was a car breaker. And you know, he won everywhere else. He was you know, quick enough to win an F5000. He held three own, championships in three a row. Three championships. He held his own against people like Ronnie Peterson, Mario Andretti, Jackie X, you know, Joseph, whoever he was partnered with. Probably more famous names than, than Brian. Yeah. Well, he, but, he's not famous because he... he by choice, didn't do much in Formula One. No, yeah. Well, and also he's called Brian. <laughs> uh, my brother's called Brian, by the way. So, so you know, it's not, it's not a name that immediately. What were your parents you thinking, Kevin and Kevin Brian? <laughs> Actually, I was almost a Gary. There you well, go. Well, there three options: well, Gary, okay. Brian, and my middle name is Kevin. Yeah, Seriously? No. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. Well, there we go. <laughs> but no, I think you know, perhaps Brian isn't better known because he didn't do much in. Formula One, you know, I think he 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 made a dozen starts or something like that. Uh, but he didn't really, you know, he I think he just said he didn't like the bullshit. I mean, he did. He won the IMSA class in '78 and '80 at Le Mans as well, and he said but they don't mean anything to me, which is interesting. You know, he said he said although I suppose I could say I won Le Mans. There is someone hung her up on this list who who did try and play that card when we spoke to them about this list, which I thought was cheeky and did not keep them off the list. Well, we'll get let, in a minute. let's get. Should we get onto them now or into the top three now? Rather, they are, and say. it is the person in third. Okay, go on. What then. a segue! Number three is Mario Andretti, whose bad luck at the Indy 500 is only matched by his bad luck at Le Mans 24 Hours. His best result was second in 1995. I would argue he contributed to that. He did, uh, but there are other contributions as well. Yeah, and of course he had other uh, opportunities. So in 1967, he he was, yeah, I think he was a bit frustrated with his co-driver, Lucien Bianchi, I think it was. Andretti wanted to beat Foyt, quite obviously, uh, as the two American legends. Now, he crashed after a pit stop. He argued, and I think still argues, that there was definitely something wrong with the brakes. There was some finger trouble on the brake. The brakes change. Isn't isn't um, it? Isn't the story that they put a pad in the wrong way around? Yes, that's the one story. Yeah. yeah. Now the team uh, argued against that. I remember I that because I once did that in my racing car. Did you? <laughs> and did you think, ah, oh, Marianne hitting <laughs> the one sixty seven? I thought, oh, no. I just thought, what's that funny noise? <laughs> And it makes a hell of a noise, doesn't it, when you put a pad in the wrong way around? Obviously, he has. Yeah. You know, by the way, he was successful in other sports car races. He, uh, I think, that he picked his race in my life a few years ago. He picked the 1970 Sebring race, where he jumped into uh, uh, one of the other 512S Ferraris to make sure that Steve McQueen didn't win the race uh, and charge through to win. But he, yeah, he did win sports car races elsewhere. Uh, the next, I guess, the next one that got away at the 24 Hours was 1983 when he was sharing with son Michael Andretti and, and Philip Alio. And had the race been a lap longer, they probably would have won. I don't buy that. Do you not? The winning car, we're talking about the factory Porsche 956s here. So Al Holbert in the winning car, the, the, the engine was at the point of blowing. It, the reason it was going to blow was because... The car had a problem with the door. The door had to be taped and strapped in place. That interrupted the airflow to to the cooling system. Basically, on the penultimate lap, 
the engine gave out, Holbert, who was the sort of master engineer, literally, I think it happened where it happened, I think it was the full, actually at the full chicane, just as he was coming to the end of the penultimate lap. He banged in the first gear and basically unseized the engine. So the engine seized on him. Somehow he got to the end of the race and hung on. The second place car, which Derek Bell was driving, had suffered all manner of delays. Derek had got in the car for the last stints because Jackie was saying, well, the brakes have gone. We need to change the brakes. Derek, I think, I don't know if he was due to get in or or not. But anyway, Norbert Singer, the engineer, said, well, either we change the brakes or you drive, you nurse it home. Uh, and Derek said, well, how long is it going to take to change the brakes? And, you know, it was four minutes at that time, you know, uh, a, a lot of time by comparison to today. So, so, so Derek says, I'll drive it. But anyway, Derek managed to do some really quick laps. I think he was setting, you know, the car's fastest laps of the race, closing on hole, but didn't get quite close enough. He was actually closer than the official results say because of the way that, you know, the ACO used to declare the result in those days because the crowd was on the track, uh, blah, blah, blah. Mario Andretti was actually in the Kramer car, the customer car, was several laps down. So he says, well, obviously, the Holbert car wouldn't have done another lap. The Bell car was shot because of its brakes. But the Bell car could have been nursed Yeah, but it was run- wasn't it running out of fuel? I thought that the- I didn't think it had enough fuel to do another lap. Well, then they would have stopped because the other car would have blown well, they would have done, out. I mean, yeah, there's just yeah, it's, fair, there's, fair this, it's 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 hypothetical in an extreme. And as much as I think Mario deserves his place on this list, and I actually think he deserves perhaps a higher place on this list, uh, perhaps uh, I don't I don't buy the argument that he could have won Le Mans eighty three. I mean, it would have been against the. Run of play. Uh, yeah, they, they weren't. They weren't in the mix, um, and it, no. you know, and it. So the so the the the, the final close one, I suppose, is is ninety five uh, in the Courage against all the. I mean, basically against the McLaren F one GTRs, yeah. wasn't it? Um, and you know, Mario put it off in traffic. He actually, when we spoke to him about it, he, he said he claimed that it was. Uh, he thought it was Hanstuck in the car he was going past, but it was actually one of the. It was Antonio Herman. Uh, is one of the Kramer cars. Yes. Actually, the other Kramer car. Yeah. Uh, and 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 they he was actually well. caught out by how slowly. You know, Herman was a good amateur driver, but you know those conditions were terrible. Uh, and um, yeah, I, it, Mario just mis, misjudged it and and went off. And you know, the delay cost them the race. But then I think you could also say that the amount of time it took Courage to repair the car was was much longer than it should should have been. Uh, Mario talks about them stopping to clean the car at one of the final stops, you know. And again, he says, well, if they hadn't have done that, we would have won. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot of would have, could have, should have's here. But, you know, it was the faster car. Of course, you know, the McLaren wasn't a match in the dry uh, for the prototype. So it really, its victory really did depend on the rain on two fronts. A, because it brought a, its closer in terms of pace but e b because it put less stress on the car and i don't think those cars would have lasted 
on a you know a quick dry race what he did say was i can still claim on my record that i won le mans if i won the class don't you think sadly mario although i think you're a total legend no <laughs> I, I don't and i don't think you do either no i don't uh, no, you know no, otherwise he would be a triple crown winner wouldn't he yeah so the world championship well if we're doing world championship rather than monaco grand prix so i think there's cl- i i get that if you if you win a you know oliver gavin has won a hard you know one of his hard fought gt1 uh victories that counts but in a sort of overall overall where you've got two different classes going for the overall and actually it's the slower of the two that That comes out top i don't sort of i don't buy that no no sadly not so yeah so i mean so really good i mean obviously one of the greats good sports car record got close to le mans but i popped him at three because i think he contributed a bit to his own downfall Let's find out if uh, Gary would have put him higher than any of the the next two. Who's at number two? Well, I'm interested. Now, I was going to ask Gary if he wanted to do these two together. Okay. Because I think you could argue either of these round into number one. I'm going to argue one of these shouldn't be number one or number two. Okay, let's get into it. Okay, let's well, I'll just go through names. them then. We'll, we'll, so, so number this, two is this, Bob- is, this is controversial. <laughs> this no, is controversial. Number two is Bob Volick. So, 30 starts. Second in 1978. 1995, 1996, 1998, numerous class wins and podiums all over the place, pole positions, you know, one of the real legends of Le Mans to such a degree that while I, when I've been putting together my top 10 Le Mans drivers, he was kind of, I did think about briefly putting him in, even though he never won, because he was that... Well, I, I think he's got a good shout. Podiums at Mon, four class victories. And uh, what we shouldn't forget is that how successful he was beyond his 50th birthday. That's an amazing thing. You know, I think he, he had more podiums after he was 50 than he did before he was 50. You know, the longevity of the guy and how competitive he was right to the end of his career. And of course, sadly, he died on the eve of the Sebring. Uh, 12 hours the race at which he was competing in uh, 2001 uh yeah when he was knocked off uh his bicycle he was a, a a keen cyclist and you know he was he was still competitive in a gt car then and it was only three years before that he could have won in what was effectively a prototype the porsche 911 uh, gt198 and and alec Nish, who, who obviously worked worked with him he he said that he was yeah as you say even when he was getting on a bit still super quick very good at being quick while not using too much fuel which obviously which is in the very group c formula you know let's not forget was was very well it, it's always been important in sports car racing but you know was particularly important then i think he was really good through slow corners as well I'm well sure alan has talked about that yeah. you know in 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 uh Bob's dotage you know he probably wasn't the guy to hang it on the line through the quick stuff uh, but yeah, his finesse in the slow corners just sort of perplexed people like Alan. And Alan said, I, I just couldn't do what he had. He, ha- he just had such finesse. So as the young man that I was, I just had to drive my bollocks off through the quick corners to make up the lost time. So, I mean, uh, there are so many potential wins that went went back. I just sort of did a list. I'm not going to read them all out because that would take too long, but you can have a look at it on, the, on allsport.com, the ones I've picked out. But... Uh, I picked out 13 
obviously for unlucky reasons but I guess what stands out I mean 1979 when the 936s as Gary's mentioned a couple of times were wheeled out uh, of the museum the quickest cars in the field Ix Redmond another Redmond loss actually I didn't even yeah, mention that forgot one about that. Uh, hit trouble with a tyre blowout that caused radiator damage uh, and Volick who taken pole um, they lost an hour to a misfire charged back to second and then had engine failure 84 pole him and Alessandro Nanini led for a, a third of the race obviously in the absence of the works uh, Porsche team Suspension and transmission troubles left them uh, eighth. Uh, I mean, fantastic run with um, with Hans Stuck in 1989 with the, the aging 962, uh, and they ended up third. Uh, but they were in they were in the mix. They had a coolant problem that cost 15 minutes. I mean, it sort of it goes on and on. Really, I guess the thing possibly against him is 97 because he's he's yeah he's the guy that goes off in the GT1. Uh, and I think he said at the time he probably told you Gary I don't really know what happened I don't know if that off in 97 has ever yeah. really been satisfactory I don't think it was, it was uh, out of Arnage it was on the run from Arnage to the Porsche Curves I think uh, uh, and I know he was following Gunon at the time and uh, Gunon has said that he got up to some little tricks there uh, but yeah so what happened it was a relatively small uh, off but it broke the drive shaft and he couldn't get back to the pits so, uh, so yeah, this sort of just sort of illustrates his bad luck. Yeah, and then ninety eight. Even then, when when Porsche had their had the one two in the nine eleven GT one ninety eight, uh, it was an off by Muller this time. Um, Jorg Muller, uh, the first chicane, which forced some repairs, which just helped give the advantage to the Laurent Aiello, Stefan Ortelli, Alan McNish car. So it just never happened for him, basically, yeah. did it? And, you know, I knew Bob relatively well, and he was a great character, you know. He, he never minced his words. Uh, and, you know, he always said, ah, oh, well, you know, I, I can live without winning Le Mans, you know. Did you believe him? No, I certainly didn't after 98 when you saw him crying on the podium. You know, and I understand that there's a lot of emotion at the end of a 24-hour race, whether you win, lose or trail home temp or whatever. I, I, I get that because, you know, you, you've been on edge for more than 24 hours, you know, or through, through the whole Le Mans week, if you like. And it's just sort of, it's a release of ad- adrenaline, isn't it? And, and clearly he was crying up on the podium. But was, was he crying for, uh, because he saw that as his last chance to win Le Mans? Or you know, he clearly knew that they were the chances were dwindling at the age that he was. I never, I never had the guts to ask him that question, unfortunately. That list, and that's not all the stories either. It's just, it is Michael Andretti at the Indy Five Hundred, but yeah. like, but for a longer period of time. You know, he did have the right kit. You know, he wasn't. I don't, I don't think he was a car breaker. Okay, there's that one little error there, but he was. Most no, of these, I, I would say exactly the opposite. Yeah, actually. Uh, really good, really and, good on and the equipment. This is a man who competed at Le Mans in five different decades. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. It was nip, nip and tuck for me uh, whether he was going to be number one on this list. Well, I'll explain why he wasn't when we get to the number one. Is he the name you would argue down? No. So not, let's no, find out no, what no, your number one is. I think is. I know where Gary's going with this, and it, it was I could go down one of two paths with this. So I guess it really comes down to whether we're talking great Le Mans drivers who didn't win, or the greatest sports car yes, drivers who didn't win. This Le Mans. is maybe it's semantics, uh, but yeah, yeah. But but that it comes down to that nuance sometimes, yeah, doesn't it, with so. this stuff? Yeah. So the 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 list uh, as as the article published is greatest sports car drivers never to win Le Mans twenty four hours. In that context, I believe that number one is Sterling Moss, 
because I think that he was the best sports car driver in the world for a considerable amount of time. If there was a debate about it in Formula One, I don't think there was a debate about it in, in sports car racing. I think he was pretty much the guy from the moment he rocked up at Jaguar in 1951 to pretty much to the moment that he had his accident. So more than a decade as the top driver. Uh, he won the Nürburgring 1,000 kilometres uh, four times. Uh, he won the Goodwood TT, almost single-handedly won the World Sports Car Championship for Aston Martin. It was only because of him they even went to the Nürburgring 1,000 kilometres in 59. He effectively then broke the Ferrari opposition in 59 at Le Mans. They, Aston finished 1-2. Even as late as 61, him and Graham Hill in the 250 GT short wheelbase Ferrari got the car up to fourth overall, like competitively, not because other people were, were, were breaking down just a phenomenal driver I think Paul Frere said he just couldn't understand when they were in the Aston Martin team together he couldn't understand how Moss could do those lap times in that car he's like it's just straights <laughs> like, but it's not yeah. just straights yeah. I mean obviously he knew that that wasn't true you know Frere won the race it was a, it was a Le Mans winner with Ferrari um, so you know he, he, he it never came together for him he finished second twice once in 1953 when uh, he recovered from an early delay with the Jaguar C-Type in 1956, which we've talked about several times in this series, sharing with Peter Collins um, in the Aston Martin DB3S. I would argue, as we said, in the Fangio entry, 1955, I can't see them losing that race if it runs as a normal event. So that's three races straight away. 59, he was the pace setter. Yeah, a performance in, in GT machinery later on. Uh, and I think the, you know, the benchmark sports car driver for a decade. So that's why he's number one on the list. However, if you're doing Le Mans drivers who didn't win the race, yes, Gary. Exactly. That's my point that Le Mans, great Le Mans drivers who didn't win the race. Uh, I don't think he does, uh, does quite so well, but again, I as you say, you know, 50, 56 in particular is, 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 is perhaps his defining drive, isn't it? Uh, um, but yeah, I, you know, don't get me wrong, I think Sterling Moss is one of the all-time great racing drivers. He'd be in my top ten, he'd be in my top five, you know, all-time greats. But it's just, I, I remember reading a piece, well, being involved in a piece actually done by another magazine about great all-rounders. And, and Sterling Moss came out on top. And I said, well, no, Sterling Moss is not the greatest all-rounder. The greatest all-rounder is someone we've been talking about, not Bob Wallach for his skiing exploits, uh, but Mario Andretti. You know, uh, Daytona 500 winner, of course, uh, an Indy 500 winner, a Formula One world champion. He 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 did it all. Uh, do I think? Yeah, Sterling Moss wasn't isn't the greatest all rounder. Is he the greatest sports car driver to win? Not to win Le Mans. He's got a shout, but he's not the best Le Mans driver not to win Le Mans. Uh, I mean, I think that I know that, that sounds a little bit like we're we're trying to sort of have our cake and eat it, but I completely ag- agree with that. I think, and actually, funnily enough, I had uh, had this conversation with with Damien Smith, obviously uh, who's you know still does stuff for all sport and you know uh, editor of Motorsport Magazine for a decade, I think. And and he kind of had the same view as Gary that he's a huge Sterling Moss fan and would put him potentially as the greatest, full stop. But in a Le Mans context, he would have put Bollock at number one. So that's how. Uh, but I think you're not at that point. You're probably not comparing them as drivers. You're comparing them and their relationship with well, the twenty four yes. hours. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, but both both mega and both should have been winners of the race. I think we'd probably agree agree on that. Mm. Well, there we go. Thank you very much for listening today. Any more names you want to mention before we sign off on this one? I think we did it at the start of the podcast, didn't we? So, Well, um, 
Kev said that we can't mention uh, drivers who never did Le Mans. So I was going to throw Ayrton Senna's name into the mix because he did, of course, do one sports car race. But I don't think that qualifies him uh, to get on this list. This is going to upset <laughs> lots of Senna fans, but I'd be sceptical of Ayrton being able to go 24 hours going through traffic without crashing into one of them. <laughs> maybe, maybe 1992 3-spec possibly, but late 80s-spec, I think he's tripping over a GT back marker every time. Just out of frustration. <laughs> Perhaps Jean-Louis Schlesser. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, let's leave it there for this one. Thank you very much for listening to another one of our top tens. Uh, you can uh, hear all of the previous episodes if you are just downloading this one and, and wondering why we're up to, what is it, episode five now? Uh, and uh, you've not heard them. They're all in the feed, in the podcast feed. Go and have a look at those on your podcast app and your player. Everything in there, as well as all the other stuff that, you, that we do on this channel. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back soon. Podcast Network.